you know, once you know how to animate, you know how to animate, but deciding what you're going to animate and why you're animating it. To me, that's a really, really, really important part of this. This is the Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. If you were to ask David Burgess about being involved in two of the three films that are considered game changers in modern animation history, he'll chuck it up to luck. But in reality, it's a combination of hard work and a willingness to take chances. Moving to Toronto after college without a job lined up. Moving to LA without a job lined up. Leaving Disney for the new uncharted world of CG. David has always worked and been motivated by the concept of loving what you do, and his career is a testament to his love of creativity, energy, and new challenges, not to mention his passion for tech savory cartoons. A veteran of the industry with 30 plus years of experience, David has worked on some of the biggest movies of our generation, including Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King, Shrek 2, and Trolls. We recently had a chance to speak with him about his career, taking chances, and how technology has changed how he works. Here's our conversation with David Burgess. I thought I'd start by asking you a little bit about your youth, because I I actually assumed, for whatever reason, that you were Canadian. Yes. You're not. (laughs) You're originally from California. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, being a young kid in Newport? What were you into as a kid? Um... I kind of, we lived in Southern California for, uh, I don't know, like the first seven or eight years of my life. We lived in the city of Orange and in Costa Mesa, but I was born in Newport Beach. Um, And then um, my mom uh, had a change in her marital status, so we moved. And uh, we ended up moving up to actually to Bellingham, Washington, which is kind of weird because now I have a place that's very close to Bellingham, Washington. So it's all kind of full circle, yeah, I guess. But yeah, we moved when I was in third grade. So I didn't spend a ton of time in Southern California, but I do think that the formative part of that were the things that kind of made me part of what I am, which is I was a comic book guy. I loved comic books and um, I loved the Bugs Bunny shorts, the Warner Brothers stuff. And I loved, um, we had like a, Saturday afternoon TV series called Creature Feature. And it had, you know, it showed a bunch of old black and white monster movies. And there was some color stuff in there too, but mostly it was old, you know, the classic kind of universal stuff and all those cheesy B movies. Um, One that I remember actually that was still super scary to me was called um, The Beast with Five Fingers. And um, Peter Lorre is the star and he basically gets stalked by this cut off hand and at the end he ends up nailing it to a two by four and throwing it in the fire so it was really intense um so yeah it was like um so that was kind of what i did was you know i played with my friends and rode my bicycle and stuff but mostly i watched uh, warner brothers cartoons and monster movies did you always draw as well yes yeah ever since i think i was about two uh yeah i always always drew so did you know that you wanted to do something with that? Did you even think that that was possible as a career? Um, I guess, you know, if we fast forward, um, 
like to high school and we lived in Washington for a while. And then, um, we moved to Hawaii for a while. And then we moved to Vernon, BC in Canada when I was a teenager. Um, cause my mom and stepdad wanted to start a, a business there. Um, I always drew in class. I think everybody always thought I was like the best, you know, artist in the class or whatever. And then, um, when I graduated from high school, I felt like I wanted to do something, but I didn't know what exactly. And I thought I wanted to do comic books because that was such a big love of mine. And you got to remember, like at this point in time and kind of like the seventies and before, um, animation wasn't very present. Um, certainly not in the theaters. I mean, they, they did Disney re-releases every couple of years. So you'd get to see, you know, Fantasia or Pinocchio on the big screen, which is really amazing, but they didn't have new stuff coming out that was very exciting. So it wasn't something that I thought about. Whereas, you know, comic books were always great. And it kind of sucked actually, because when we moved from California to Washington, I had a, you know, a pretty good sized comic book collection. And, you know, my favorites were like Bernie Wrightson and the Swamp Thing and um, Conan the Barbarian with Barry Smith. Um, I liked some of the John Byrne X-Men stuff. There's all those things that I really liked. And um, our movers stole all of our stuff. So um, I lost all of my comic book collection, which was brutal. And then um, I kind of gave it up. But I still appreciated it, even though I didn't like buy it the same way I had been doing. I didn't buy the issues or whatever. So um, when I told my parents that I wanted to go to art school they sort of were like, yeah, whatever, we don't care. They were, um, you know, it was nice. They were interested in their own things. They weren't super supportive, but they also weren't very um, disparaging of what I wanted to do. So um, I made up with this plan where I was going to, um, I'd heard of this place in California called CalArts that was supposed to be really good. So I was going to um, go to CalArts, but I felt like maybe I needed to do something else first. So I thought, well, there's this art school in Vancouver called Emily Carr, and maybe I'll apply there and see if I can get in. And then maybe after two years, my portfolio will be good enough, and then I'll transition to CalArts. So the year after high school, I actually I took it off, and um, I skied uh, basically every day for a season. That was really, really fun. I got to be a really good skier. Um, and then I applied to Emily Carr and they actually accepted me, which was crazy because all the stuff that I had was, you know, all the illustrations I'd done for the high school yearbook and things like that, all my comic book drawings. Um, so I, um, moved to Vancouver. I lived with my aunt and uncle around Knight and Kingsway. And so the first year there was a foundation year where you get to, you know, it's like you do a little of this and a little of that. There's a little printmaking. There's a little, you know, kind of like performance art. There's all kinds of things. And that was um, a real mind blower for me, you know, having grown up in a lot of small places. So being exposed to that was really, really incredible. And it was also really amazing because um, I've also been a really, really big music nerd for my whole life. Um, I don't know how it started, but um, like when I was in high school, I was the editor of the school paper for a while. And I, I made a, I started doing music reviews in the high school paper, which, you know, who cares, but I was really passionate about it. So, um, that really continued, you know, it continues to this day. So, um, it was really exciting to be in Vancouver in the late seventies and early eighties, because there were so many amazing bands that came through town. And, um, 
especially the English, like the new wave and the punk bands or whatever that came through town. Um, so I got to see so many incredible concerts while I was going to art school. Cause, um, every summer I would work for my dad at his, uh, bath, his fiberglass bathtub company in Vernon. And then I would, you know, I'd make a bunch of money from doing that. And then I'd come back to Vancouver at my aunt and uncle's place, which my parents were paying for. And then I would spend all my money by Christmas, you know, going to concerts and stuff. So they would support me, which was really, really great. So I got to see, like, I saw the police twice. I saw XTC. I saw Iggy pop. I saw, you know, pretty much all the, you know, really amazing bands that were around at that time. Um, and, uh, I just regret that I didn't take pictures cause now I'm kind of a, a photo photography nut and, um, I still go to a lot of concerts and I try to smuggle in cameras and I take a lot of pictures of the bands and, um, I have some really like excellent, excellent, uh, concert photos of artists that I love that I've taken over the past, you know, five or 10 years. But, um, I wish I had done it back then. Cause that, that was, I think such an amazing time. Um, and then, yeah, side note, I think one of the shows that I always remember being like the best was, um, I think it was at the Commodore and it was the specials opening for the police and the specials were, that was the best show I'd ever seen. They were so amazing. And then the police were fine. And then the specials, they were so well received and they had a slot in their schedule that they came back the next night and just did a special show. So I went back for that. It was really, really amazing. Uh, but anyway, uh, back to art school. So after the first year was over and the, the, um, the foundation year was done, um, it was time to start thinking about a major. So it's really lame, but back then there were no like graphic novels courses available. So I couldn't get into comic books, which is what I wanted to do. But there was this um, animation course that was around and um, it was taught by this um, ex national film board of Canada animator named Hugh Folds, who um, my favorite film by Hugh Folds is called the bears Christmas which um, is one of the most sad Christmas animation shorts you'll ever see. Um, that's really, really charming and sweet. And um, anyway, so Hugh was doing this animation class and he did an intro like lecture. And um, one of the first things he said was, there's no work in animation. None of you guys will ever get jobs in animation, but if you like animation, this is the class. So, you know, I was really like, I didn't think about animation. I never ever had considered it as any kind of career or anything, but I'm like, ah, eh, I think it's kind of related to comics. I'll give it a try. So, um, kind of for my first, uh, flip book, um, that I, you know, did on just a little, you know, a little pad of paper. And then I filmed it and saw it moving. I just really, really loved it. And so, um, I, decided to, you know, yeah, I'll take this class and who cares what the future brings, we'll see. So, um, I was really lucky, I think, because I could do it and I didn't mind the mind numbing repetition. If you know what I mean? Like, you know, you're doing drawing after drawing after drawing and they're all slightly different, but that never bugged me. Like I always, to me, that was just part of what you did to get to the part where you got to shoot your images and play it back at speed and see how it moved. So yeah, that never bothered me. But like one of my best friends that we collaborated on some comic book stuff in art school too, um, he tried animation and he gave up after about two months. Cause he was just like, I can't do it. Like, it's just too weird and too hard, but, um, that never bothered me. So I took animation and I, 
I think I had a kind of a knack for it. So um, at the end of my second year, I really liked, you know, what was going on at Emily Carr with animation. So I decided to just stay there and I, I decided to not attempt to uh, get into CalArts. And so, um, so I took my second year, my third year. And then by the time I was in my fourth year, Hugh, my teacher, he just said, you know, I, I can't teach you anything anymore. What do you want to do? So I said, well, how about if I take, um, I'll take animation as an independent study and I'll just continue with my life drawing and then you can just advise me and I'll work on a short film. So that's what I ended up doing in my last year. And, um, I've always been kind of a procrastinator in my life, you know, how, you know, just put things off if, as long as you can. And, you know, you always do what you need to do, but the later you can get to it, the better. But for whatever reason, when I was in my fourth year, um, I didn't do that. I just jumped in with both feet and I, like I did this little short film called levels. It's about two and a half minutes long. And, um, the way I did it was I, I storyboarded it as a flip book. And then once I had that working in the animatic, then I just animated it, uh, the whole thing. And it's kind of the story of a kid who grows up through his art. Uh, I guess, you know, it's kind of a dumb story, but like it started off with scribbles, like kid drawings, and then it advanced through to like crayons and colored pencils and markers and, and then finally into cell and, you know, ink and paint. And um, by the time that my little character got to cells and ink and paint, he was really stiff because, you know, um, life had happened and he had gotten older and he'd forgotten all the, the fun stuff that all the joy from being young and fresh and exciting or whatever. Anyway, blah, blah, stupid idea. Um, but, uh, anyway, so I, I finished the animation by Christmas and then I spent, um, and it started in September and then I spent, um, all of January and February rendering. And then I spent March and April editing and I used as many friends as I could to help me with that stuff. Um, my friend Colin did music for me. My friend um, Daryl helped me with editing. Um, my girlfriend at the time, Cindy, she helped me a lot with my um, my ink and paint stuff and all the rendering. And so um, I actually finished my project. And I finished it in um, probably, I don't know, May. And graduation was in June. So I completely finished my entire two and a half minute film. It was done. And, um, none of my classmates finished any of their projects. And, um, I felt like this is a little bit of a, of a valuable life lesson, but I basically got the entire animation budget because I was the only one who finished. So I didn't, it didn't cost me a penny to do my film, which, you know, in a normal world, every, you'd have to pitch in your own money and, you know, there's X amount divided up by each student and all that. But because I was the only one who finished, I got the entire budget. So, um, yeah, so I, I graduated. And then, um, the year before I graduated, actually that summer, I didn't go back and make bathtubs. I got a job at a little animation company in Vancouver called Marmalade doing like public service commercials. And so, um, I was actually animating when I was in, you know, in between my third and fourth year, I was animating and people were paying me. So I guess I was a professional animator, but I felt like, um, I wanted to be in a really good, uh, animation environment. Like I didn't, I didn't want to be animating when I was in, when I just was out of school, I wanted to be learning. So, um, I eventually, uh, I left Vancouver. I went to, um, Montreal, Toronto and Ottawa, and I applied at a bunch of different places. 
And one of the really cool things about my teacher, Hugh, was, you know, he was good friends with a lot of the folks that worked at the National Film Board. So when um, during my fourth year, um, John Weldon, who won the Oscar for Special Delivery, um, who's a film board short filmmaker, um, he came and spent a week with us. Um, just to kind of look at what we're doing and show his work and what he was, you know, his process and stuff. And I think he also wanted to pick Hugh's brain a little bit about a film that he was just getting ramped up on. And um, so I got to know John a little bit for that. And then um, when I was, you know, doing my Eastern studio tour, trying to get a job um, when I was in Montreal, I called John cause he was the only person I knew. And I had, it's funny cause I had two phone numbers for him. I had his home phone and I had his NFB phone. So at first I called his home and I got his partner, Margaret. And so she said, you know, I said, I am Dave and I'm a student and I met John at Emily Carr and I'm in Montreal for a couple of days. And I'm looking for work. And she said, Oh, um, well, why don't you stay with us for the weekend? And I was like, Oh, um, sure. Okay. That'd be really lovely. And then I called John at the film board and then John said, Oh yeah. Hey Dave, how you doing? And I said, I'm here and I'm looking for work. And he said, Oh, I'm actually looking for an assistant, uh, for this new project I'm starting called real inside. And he said, would you be interested? And I said, yeah, I'd totally be interested. When should we talk? And he said, well, why don't you come in, uh, to the studio on Monday and we'll go over it and I'll, I'll see you then. And I said, well, actually I'll see you at your house tonight. Cause I'm staying at your house. So anyway, um, uh, I got that job. So John hired me to be his assistant. So that was my first job out of school was at the National Film Board on Cote d'Ilias in Montreal, um, working on Real Inside with him. And at the time, um, you know, I don't know, but, you know, having spent a lot of my formative years in Canada, you know, moving there when I was, what, like 14 or whatever, um, I saw a lot of the NFB shorts whenever I'd go and see a film in the theater. And I remember seeing, you know, Log Driver's Waltz, which was another one of John's films and Special Delivery and Ryan Larkin's Walking. And one of my favorites is Why Me by Janet Perlman and Derek Lamb. And that's, to me, it's just one of the best, like, coolest short films ever because the animation is really, like, specific and interesting, but just the verve of the performance and the, the way the story is told, is just, it's so amazing. And, you know, Issue Patel and Brian, um, Carolyn Leaf and, um, Norman McLaren was still alive. Uh, Grant Monroe was there. So it was a really amazing time, like to be at the film board, to be able to go down to the cafeteria at lunchtime and have lunch with Norman McLaren, you know, it's just incredible. So, um, that was my first job. And then it was actually, I got, was really lucky because I actually had an offer in Ottawa and an offer in Toronto. So it was like, Oh wow, I can pick and choose. But I sort of felt like the film board thing was the best option for me. Uh, so that's what I did. And I worked with John for about a year and a half on that project. I'm, I'm curious. I want to jump back just for one second to, you know, your second year, uh, Emily Carr and making yeah. the decision that animation was the way to go. I'm curious, did you ever consider being a music journalist with your passion for music? Um, I didn't, but I was in a band, like I, I'm a drummer. And when I was in high school, I was in a band with some friends and we used to play bars and weddings and stuff. You know, we were underage, but we would do it anyway. And, um, like a dummy, when I got to Vancouver, I'm like, oh, I can't be a musician anymore. I have to focus on art. So I sold my drums. Oh. And then, yeah, and then I didn't play music for like 15 years, oh. which is weird. I don't know what I was thinking. I just felt like I couldn't do both. So 
I, yeah, I put that away for a while. And then it wasn't until I was at Disney um, many years later in Southern California again that some friends went, hey, man, um, we hear you play drums. Do you want to come and jam with us? And I was like, um, I guess so. That sounds really scary, but yeah, sure. And then of course I got back into it and I continue, you know, I, I, we had me and three friends at Disney, we put out an album and all kinds of stuff. Uh, the other thing that was just coming to mind as you were talking about the national film board is, and even, you know, speaking, hearing you talk about your past, you seem very drawn to independent voices. Have you ever wanted to or considered continuing on? Was there ever a time where you considered being like an independent filmmaker? Um, well, I, I had an idea that I wanted to make when I was, you know, finishing up with John and I pitched it to Derek and, you know, some of the other folks to David Barrell. And I think they liked it, but they didn't think that it was film worthy enough. So, um, or, you know, it's made it's probably a stupid idea. I don't know, but, um, it didn't happen. So I sort of fell into commercials and I started working at Michael Mills, which is a really good little commercial studio in Montreal. Um, and then I had ideas that I wanted to do. There's this one sort of fairy tale that I've got boarded that, um, I just, I still want to do. And I don't know. Um, I think I just got so busy with my day job that I, I just, I kind of didn't, you know, put super amount of energy into that. Cause if you're animating all day, it's really hard to animate all night and on the weekends on something else. It's just, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. So, um, and like to jump a little bit forward, like when, when I, uh, after I left, um, I, <laughs> after I'd been at Mike Mills for about a year, I felt like I needed to be challenged again. So I decided I would try to move to Los Angeles and see what happened. And, um, I eventually got, I did move to LA and I did get a job at Hanna-Barbera and I worked on, uh, you know, Smurfs and Scooby-Doo and stuff like that. And the, quota there was 65 feet per week. And I know a lot of the animators that I work with, um, they're always kind of puzzled because I still think in feet and I talk about shots being, you know, X amount of feet long and it's not seconds or frames because in LA, everything was always done in feet and a foot is, uh, is like 16 frames. So it's, you know, three quarters of a second. So that was how we measured everything. So uh, 65 feet of animation per week is about 40 seconds per week. So that meant you had to crank it out and it had to just go through. Um, so I could do that. And I did that for a couple of years, but, um, and I got, I think a lot out of that, that helped me really um, streamline my process and helped me really um, clarify my thinking about, you know, um, what I wanted to accomplish. Cause I think a lot of, um, a lot of what I talk to my students about is the why more than the how, because, you know, once you know how to animate, you know how to animate, but deciding what you're going to animate and why you're animating it, to me, that's a really, really, really important part of this. So that helped, I think, clarify with that. But the whole time I was doing, you know, Smurfs and all that stuff, um, I was freelancing commercials because I wanted to, um, to get better. I wanted to improve my skills. I didn't want to just, you know, crank out 40 seconds of animation of TV animation every week. Um, and again, at this point in time, this was, oh man, when was this? Uh, the mid eighties, I guess. Um, features were still not happening. There wasn't, I wasn't, 
you know, going to a movie and looking at a really amazing Disney film that had just come out and being blown away and going, Oh my God, I, I would want to, I want to do that. Cause those didn't exist. Those were not happening then. And can you talk a little bit more about, I was, I was going to ask specifically about Hanna-Barbera because I've heard that it was kind of crazy there and you've mentioned there was a lot of that was expected. Um, can you talk a little bit about, cause it seems to me like, your your career is marked by these periods where you kind of it's not that you get bored but you feel like you need a change and you make these leaps um so you know you go from the national film board and from being in canada to going to la to work at hanna-barbera and then from there you go to disney but can you talk a little bit about that experience at hanna-barbera did when you went to la did you did you already have a job lined up did you just go in blind (laughs) what was that like um, it was really funny because I, I actually went to LA on my honeymoon, um, with my first wife. And while I was on my honeymoon, uh, I applied for jobs at a couple of studios. I took my portfolio around and I actually got a job at Bill Melendez on my honeymoon doing some assistant work on a peanut special. So, um, I couldn't believe that I was like, working on a peanut special and I got paid way, way more doing that little bit of assisting that I did than I was making up in Canada. So I just had this stupid idea that, you know, I could go back and I talked to the Bill Melendez folks and, um, they were like, I said, if I move back to LA, will you guys hire me? And they said, um, maybe. And I said, that's good enough for me. So, um, my move, that was kind of my plan. And then I got there and they didn't have any work. So, um, there was a couple months where I couldn't find a job. And, um, again, my, uh, my last year at animation at Emily Carr, um, another animator friend of Hughes, this guy named Barry Nelson, who lived in, um, Southern California, was a freelance animator. Um, he spent some time with us as well. And I got to know Barry and he was one of those guys that, um, he brought up his reel and, when he showed it, like, I, I could not believe it. I, I couldn't believe how amazing it was. Um, he did, he had commercials that he'd done for Kurtz and friends. He'd animated almost all of the windy day by John and Faith Hubley. Um, just his real blew my mind and I just couldn't believe it. Like, and Barry was from uh, Saskatchewan. I couldn't believe that anybody could do that kind of work. So, um, when I, you know, when I did get to LA and I didn't get that job at Melendez because they didn't have any work at that time, um, I knew Barry. So I called him up and, um, he lived in Malibu, like I say. So I went out to visit him for, you know, get some advice and support and some, you know, see if he could offer me any suggestions. And I was also blown away the fact that, wow, this guy's an animator and he lives in Malibu. Like, that's amazing. I like you know, how cool is that? And it turned out that his wife was a realtor. So I think that's, that's more likely why they could afford to live in Malibu. Um, but anyway, yeah, Barry gave me some really excellent advice and he called, um, Jay, who was the animation supervisor at Hanna-Barbera, this guy, Jay Sarbury. And, um, he recommended me to Jay. So then Jay hired me. And so again, it was, it was like a, a network thing, right? It was like, I had somebody who kind of vouched for me and then, um, and then I was able to get my foot in the door. So, um, working at H and B was really, for me, it was really fun because I worked in the studio and most of the animators who worked there did not, they, it was freelance. And there was a lot of these guys that had worked on all the Tex Avery, um, cartoons and all the, you know, the, um, Hanna-Barbera, Tom and Jerry cartoons. 
um, they would come in every Monday and they would pick up their stack from Jay of shots that they had to do for the week. And then, you know, I'd say hi to them. And there'd be like Ed Love and all these guys whose names I'd seen on all these amazing shorts. Cause, um, I mean, I, I talked about the Warner Brothers stuff earlier, but the Tex Avery stuff was hugely influential to me. Like I love Tex Avery and I loved his crazy sense of humor and the fact that he would do anything for, for a laugh, like anything. Um, so these guys would come in and they would pick up, you know, their, their handout and then they would leave, but it, I got to see them. I got to talk to them. So, um, I worked, you know, in, in the studio and the way that it worked was you, you know, you did your, <laughs> your animation, you didn't pencil test stuff very often. You just kind of did it. And then you, you marked it up for the in-betweens and then you handed it off. And then it was in between overseas and it was shot overseas and then it was edited back in LA. And then you had, it had to be really, really terrible to bounce back to you for a fix. So, um, you had to kind of get it right the first time. And so, um, that was, like I say, that was a really interesting learning experience and an amazing discipline. Um, and, it kind of amazed me because, you know, I'd be walking through the hall somewhere or whatever. And one of the editors would come up to me and they'd sort of go, Oh, hey, Dave, your shots looked really good down in editorial. I was like, really? Cause I'd never seen them. And, um, I would see them on TV when they were, you know, when the show would air. So, um, but I guess I was really trying, you know, I wasn't, um, I wasn't just phoning it in. I wasn't, uh, doing the bare minimum. I was doing as much as I could possibly do within, you know, the, the framework of that kind of, uh, quota, uh, pressure. And, um, I think one of the things that I, I talked to, um, you know, animation students or whatever that, um, are in, uh, that end up getting into television is I think television is really, really great. And, um, you know, for a lot of the reasons that I mentioned, like you have to learn how to make really valid choices quickly. You have to execute, um, quickly, but, um, I think a lot of the way to, to get ahead in TV is to, um, pick and choose, like what are a couple shots that you actually want to zhuzh a little bit more, you know? So, um, finding time to do that and to make some of your shots look better and to try to really push the quality, that's what gets you out of TV and kind of into features. And so, um, and that was why I did commercials when I was doing all the H and B stuff. Cause I felt like, wow, if I can do a, like an M&M commercial or a, you know, Charlie tuna commercial or a raid bug commercial, I'm going to have some fun animation. I can show somebody that's going to look better than Smurfs. So, um, that was kind of why I did it. And can you talk a little bit about that move from, you know, TV to features when you went over to Disney. How did that even come about? Was that ever a goal? Was Disney ever something that, yes, I want to work there? Um, it wasn't, honestly. And animation, like I've mentioned before, was pretty dead through most of my early career. And then what happened was um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit came out, mm -hmm. and that changed the industry. And um, I think, um, in my opinion... I've seen three quantum shifts in the industry in while I've been an animator. The first was Roger Rabbit. The second was the Lion King and the third was Shrek two. And each of those movies um, made the industry shift in such a major way that um, everything after those, those projects was different. So 
um, what happened, I think, with Roger Rabbit was this movie came out and it was done by Disney, but it wasn't all made by Disney animators. Um, you know, it was done in England with Dick Williams and it was a mixed crew of people that, that went over from Burbank from the Disney studio, plus a whole bunch of European animators, people that had gone to Sheridan, people that had, you know, learned to animate in the um, commercial um, industry in London, um, you know, Russell Hall and people like that. So um, it was made in a very different way. And so um, the movie came out and it did really, really well. And, you know, it made a lot of money. And um, there was all of a sudden animation was kind of cool. Like people kind of liked it. So um, I felt like it opened some doors. And before that, honestly, um, if you wanted to get into Disney, um, to, from my perspective, the only way to do it was to go to CalArts. And if you went to CalArts and you took um, the animation course and they offered two animation courses, right? They had experimental animation and then they had commercial animation or whatever it was called traditional animation. Um, if you were really good by the end of your third year, you would be in the student showcase and you would get hired by Disney and then you would not graduate. You would you know, leave after your third year and then you would go to Disney and you would work there until you retired. And that was how it went. That was how most of the people, I think got in there. But then after Roger Rabbit, it felt like the studio kind of went, Oh, well, there was all these other people that didn't go to Cal arts that worked on Roger Rabbit and the animation was really good. So it kind of opened up the hiring doors um, at Disney. So people from Sheridan, people from Canada, people from Europe, I, you know, I think it, it meant that you didn't have to go to Cal arts to get in. So um, at this point I've been, working only in commercials for a couple of years and I really, really liked commercials and I was still mostly freelance, but I worked for a lot of different companies. Um, I loved them because they were, you know, they were only 30 seconds and you had about six weeks to make them look amazing and then they were done and then you moved on to the next one. Um, so there was a real nice energetic, you know, sort of pattern to doing that. And I, and I quite like that, but at one point I kind of went, well, maybe, um, it'd be nice to try something where you can do more of a performance because if you work in games or you work in commercials, it's all about doing, and there's never any thinking. It's just, you know, stuff happens and, you know, you show the character flying in and picking up the spoon or whatever. So, um, I thought it'd be interesting challenge to try to, um, animate characters that had to think before they did. So, um, I thought, well, maybe Disney would be worth, um, a, sh a shot, you know, worth talking to. So, um, I took my reel and actually, um, I had met, uh, Dick and Jill Purdom who have a commercial studio in London and, um, they wanted me to work on, I showed them some stuff and they wanted me to work on beauty and the beast and they were the directors of Beauty and the Beast at that time. So they said, would you be willing to, you know, to go to LA and work on that with us? And I was like, yeah, that'd be really great. So, um, so that's kind of how I think I got my foot in the door at Disney and then, you know, worked out all the details and I moved back to California. Um, and then Dick and Jill ended up quitting, um, cause they had a very different sort of opinion of what beauty and the beast should be, uh, compared to, I think what Jeffrey Katzenberg wanted. So they ended up leaving and then Kirk and Gary took it over. And, um, so when I got to Disney, my first movie was supposed to be 
Beauty and the Beast, but it wasn't ready to go because of the director shift. So my first actual project there was um, Rescuers Down Under. And when, when I'd been talking with them, I knew they'd been working on this other movie that was just about to come out, but I hadn't seen really very much about it. So um, anyway, made my deal with them. I was in transit, got to LA, and then I went to see their new movie, which was called The Little Mermaid. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like it was so much better than The Black Cauldron or Fox and the Hound or even um, Great Mouse Detective, which, you know, had its moments. But this was like, it's, you know, the characters are really amazing. Um, The animation is is gorgeous. The songs are incredible. And then Little Mermaid did really, really well. So I felt like I was at the right place because I felt like the studio was really starting to get something back, you know? So, um, so after, uh, Rescuers Down Under, which was a lot of fun to work on, um, I got on to Beauty and the Beast and it's sort of funny because a lot of times, you know, when people talk about the golden age of Disney or whatever in the nineties, um, they'll talk about Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and whatever and Lion King. Um, but poor old Rescuers Down Under gets gets skipped a lot because it was such a throwback kind of film. You know, it wasn't a musical. It was a sequel to a, an earlier Disney movie, The Rescuers. Um, but there's a lot of really cool stuff in that movie. And um, I had so much fun, like, animating on it. I mostly did um, Joanna and Frank, the lizards. And, um, yeah, it was, it was just really fun. And, uh, it was amazing to be there, you know, again, to come into the Disney studio and, you know, oh gosh, there's Glenn Keane, there's Ruben Aquino. Um, these are all guys that are on the same film as me. Um, so I started to figure out, you know, kind of what that meant and how to adapt, you know, kind of what I loved about animation and try to make it work within kind of the Disney quote unquote style, I guess. And what was the biggest challenge of that? sort of finding your footing? Um, well, for rescuers, it was, it wasn't too hard because I don't know, the characters kind of existed and I don't know, I, I still tried to inject my, um, my love of the Warners and the Tex Avery stuff into what I was doing. Um, I didn't want to just, I don't know, make it softer because I guess, like to me, um, the Disney shorts in particular, there were some that I could, that I admired because of the animation, but, um, they weren't funny. Whereas, you know, the Chuck Jones cartoons were funny. The Tex Avery cartoons were funny. And I loved that. I loved the funny stuff. And I liked, um, you know, I liked getting, you know, not being able to stop laughing when I was watching something. And a lot of those Disney shorts didn't do that to me. They never, ever did that. So I guess maybe that's another reason why I wasn't super keen to, um, to go there. But then once I was there, I didn't want to throw away the things that I loved. I wanted to try to keep those and see if I could make those work within Disney. So there's like, there's a part in Rescuers Den Under where Joanna chases Frank, um, around this, this sort of cage area. And, uh, she ends up, using this shotgun with her tail and she blasts at Frank and he ends up in this really strong pose with shotgun blast all around him. He didn't get hit and he sort of pants and he goes, huh, missed. And when he does that, I had him looking around and panting and stuff. And there's a whole bunch of smear frames and things in there. And I was like, I know this is Disney and I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Cause I, this is what I love. So, um, I tried to, you know, like I say, I tried to inject 
um, the sense of energy and, and sort of, I don't know, <laughs> more, more 2d animation. I know it's all 2d animation, but Disney stuff is more 3d looking. It was always more dimensional than like the Tex Avery stuff. Mm-hmm. So I tried to, um, to put as much of that stuff back into it. And, um, and I don't know, nobody told me to stop doing it. So I guess it was okay. <laughs> well, and, and I mean, looking at some of the characters that you worked on during your time at, at Disney, all of the characters that you worked on have a lot of swagger. There's, there's like an energy, almost like a kinetic energy to the way they move. Um, yeah, I, think I love, I love energy. Like to me, energy and animation, that's the thing that I'm really gravitating towards always. Like I love, you know, fun, energetic uh, characters and moments. Um, it's really great to animate a, you know, a real heartfelt, um, you know, emotional beat. Um, and that's certainly challenging, but that's not what floats my boat when I'm animating. Like I, I like doing that, but I love doing the other stuff. I love doing the, more of that. Like when Frank was running around being chased and, you know, all that kind of stuff, that was super, super fun for me. And I mean, of all of the the films and all the characters that you animated while at Disney, I'm mm-hmm. curious, do you have a favorite and why? Um, I mean, to me, they all have things that I remember really fondly about them. Um, like after, after Rescue was, was over and then um, Beauty and the Beast was coming up, I remember uh, Ruben Aquino asked me if I would be on the Maurice team. And I was kind of excited about that because I really like Ruben's work, but I didn't think that was a good fit for me. Um, and then Andreas, who was the lead on Gaston, he asked me if I would, or I think maybe I asked him if I could be on the Gaston team because I thought that was a better fit for me. And he said, sure. So I got on the Gaston team. And then for me, though, the, the most fun I had on um, Beauty and the Beast was the Bimbets, those blonde girls that were always fainting whenever they saw Gaston, because I animated almost all of them. And that was one of those things where I don't even know why, but the directors just gave those shots to me. And um, they were like, again, they were so much fun to draw. And I had uh, Lurlene was my cleanup artist on those shots. And she just did the best, most beautiful flowing line work on those on those bimbets. They were just so much fun. Um, so that was really, really cool. And then I guess, oh, there's a, I don't know, this is a little animation trivia thing, but, um, I actually animated the part at the end when, uh, Gaston the beast are fighting it out up on the rooftop and, um, Gaston stabs the beast and then the beast roars and then Gaston loses his balance and falls to his death, um, down into the mists below. Um, and when he falls, he falls right past camera and the camera gets really close to his face. And if you step frame through that, I put skulls in his eyes oh. and, um, I just did it for fun. Cause I thought it was cool <laughs> and they took it out of one or two versions, but I think it's back in there now. So if you, if you're interested, you can, um, you can look for Gaston skull eyes and you can find those, you can find images or you can just, you know, step frame through the, the film and see them. But I, I thought that was really cool that I like, no, I, I don't even think the directors noticed when I did it, but um, I did it anyway. And then the cleanup guys did it and they thought it was funny. And then the ink and paint guys painted it. So it was in the movie. Everybody was in on the joke. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Um, and then 
I think after Beauty, what was next? Um, oh, Aladdin. Um, I got to be on the Genie crew on Aladdin, which was such a gift because that was, I think, like really perfect casting for me. And um, I got to work with Eric Goldberg, and he was so amazing. I learned, you know, so much from Eric. And he was really generous with me because um, I think he gave me so many like super juicy genie shots that um, when the time came, you know, to find supervisors for Lion King, which um, at the time there was, you know, there were two movies going on at Disney. I, this is all old news, but, you know, Pocahontas was like the big film and Lion King was the little other film. So um, a whole bunch since, you know, most of the, the heavy hitters were on Pocahontas. Um, I think that opened up some opportunities for some of us to, you know, be, get characters and to become character supervisors on Lion King. So, you know, me, Tony Bancroft, Mike Surrey, um, we got a chance to lead characters. Although, you know, I was on the hyenas and I was split that with Alex Cooperschmidt, um, who was in Florida. So we had a Florida hyena team and a, and a Glendale hyena team. Um, but, that's kind of how that happened. And there's absolutely no way I would have gotten that if I hadn't gotten such great genie shots, you know, from Eric uh, to animate. Um, so that was really fun. And then I think, like I mentioned, um, when Lion King came out, um, it sort of changed the industry again because it was so successful. And um, all of a sudden, um, like it made a billion dollars back in the day. So all these people were like, wow, you can make a billion dollars if you make an animated feature. So there were studios popping up all over the place. And um, there was a lot of uh, interest in animation. So it kind of meant that animators had options, which um, it's it's kind of, I don't know. I've been really lucky. Um, apart from that couple month period when I was in, when I first moved to Los Angeles, when I was looking for my first job, um, after that, I never, ever really had any downtime. Um, I kind of went from project to project to project to project, whether it was, you know, freelancing commercials or once I got to Disney, you know, that was really steady. Oh, I worked on, on Garfield in between there for a while and all these other things, but, um, I was always busy. So, um, not every animator um, had that experience because there was a lot of times where it was really lean and there wasn't very much work. So um, after Lion King, there was a lot of work in animation. So I think people had lots and lots of opportunities um, to, uh, you know, to, to get jobs and to start animating for a living and, and all that kind of thing. So it also meant that you could, um, potentially if somebody else wanted to give you a job, you could maybe negotiate for slightly more money, um, which was great. And it sort of meant that animators had a little bit more power. Cause I think, um, before that it felt like you didn't like whatever was offered you took and, you know, you just did your best to, um, to kind of keep your head down and do your job and hope that you didn't get uh, let go at the end of the project. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, that was really exciting after Lion King came out. But you didn't leave Disney right after The Lion King, King came out. It was a couple of years before you moved, made the move to DreamWorks. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to make that jump? Oh, yeah. Um, so after, after, yeah, after Lion King, um, I worked on a couple of other things. I worked on Hunchback in Notre Dame, and I got to go live in Paris for six months, which was pretty sweet. Um, and then I worked a little bit on Pocahontas, 
and I worked a lot on Tarzan. I was the the supervisor on Porter, who was Jane's dad. That was a really, really fun project. Um, And while I was working on Tarzan, um, I'd seen some of the Pixar shorts and they, um, and then uh, Toy Story came out and it completely blew me away. Um, I was like, wow, this is so different. And I loved the, um, the subtlety in the facial performance that the CG guys were able to achieve because in hand-drawn animation, like a, a line makes a difference. And if you're shot, um, if, you know, you've got the, you have teams working on each shot, there's an animator and then there's a lead key and then there's in-betweeners and all these other things. And so, um, I got to say, like when I started, I worked really rough and as time went by, I got tighter and tighter and tighter because I felt like the tighter I made my drawings, the, the closer it would get to looking like I wanted it to look when it was on screen. Um, again, because like a pencil line would make a difference in like an eyelid shape or something. So, um, when I saw the CG stuff, the Pixar film, I was like, wow, those guys have absolute control. That's amazing. So, um, so I was really excited about that. And, um, at the end of Tarzan, um, Disney was working on, um, they'd been, they'd done a film called dinosaur, which is a CG film, which, you know, it is what it is. And there was another CG project that they were starting to think about. Um, that was called wildlife. And, um, I think the directors wanted wildlife to have a little bit of, uh, of a 2d sensibility. So, um, I'd always been a little bit of a tech guy, um, in 2d, like, you know, we had, um, computers to help us with our pencil tests and stuff. And I was always one of the beta testers and, um, I, I was never frightened by technology. Um, I liked my Mac and, uh, and you know, that I felt like that's just part of, of what I did. Um, so, um, I know some animators didn't like that and they, they, you know, would give their, their, uh, shots to a, a assistant to go shoot cause they didn't want to deal with the computer part of it. Whereas I did. And I liked giving feedback and I liked, you know, talking to the engineers about how to make it better. Um, so anyway, they were, there was this film called wildlife that they were developing. And, um, I thought, well, maybe I should talk to the directors. So I went over to talk to them and, um, I said, I, I really, I'm excited to learn CG and I would love to be a part of your film. And they said, do you have any CG experience? And I said, no. And they said, well, thank you very much, but no, we, we won't consider you. So I was like, Oh crap. And then, um, that weekend, um, I downloaded this, software program called poser and poser is a really really primitive 3d program and it had like a little like you know those little wood drawing guys that you have it it, that was basically the rig it was like one of those little wood sort of figures so i downloaded it and then i i kind of spent the weekend playing with it and i figured out how to make it do a couple things and i i had a movie of like of the guy walking and i did a thing where he kind of ran around and jumped up and down and stuff like that and then um I called the directors next week and I said, Hey, um, if you guys have a couple minutes, could I stop back by? And they said, sure. So, um, I went back and I said, Oh, I, I did some CG over the weekend. It's not very good, but here, and I showed it what I did. And they said, you're on the project. So, um, I think they wanted to make sure that a a 2d animator that got into the CG environment, that their brains wouldn't explode. Mm. Um, 
So I think that that showed that my brain wouldn't explode and that I was pretty dedicated. So, um, so I ended up spending about six months on wildlife and, um, I won't, I won't talk too much about that, but it was really kind of refreshing to me at the time because, um, I don't know, after Tarzan, I felt like, um, we'd kind of done the musical and like, I liked Tarzan because it was different because most of the songs weren't actually sung by characters that wanted things. It was, you know, songs that were, you know, they were, they helped the story, but the characters weren't singing. Mm -hmm. They were music that supported it. So, um, as the studio was kind of going back towards these other projects, I wasn't super excited about them. And this one looked really different because it was kind of a Pygmalion story that was set in the New York nightclub scene. Um, and I thought it had a lot of potential. So anyway, I worked on that and I worked on a lot of like rig tests and rig development and animation character development. And then, um, they got the whole movie up on legs and they showed it to Roy Disney and Roy Disney shut it down on the spot. And he said, the studio is never going to make this movie. So, um, I had the choice of going back to 2d or continuing in CG at Disney and working on VFX because they were doing 102 Dalmatians at the time and they were doing Reign of Fire, that dragon movie. Mm-hmm. And um, neither of those appealed to me because I wanted to do character animation. I didn't want to do effects. Um, but I wanted to do character animation with a computer, not my pencil anymore, because I, I was really excited by that. So um, I sent out three reels. I sent one to ILM, one to PDI, and one to Pixar. And um, it was really nice because ILM and PDI got back to me really fast. And so I flew up, to, and they were both in San Francisco. And um, so I flew up and interviewed, and um, I really liked ILM. And I met Rob Coleman there. And it's interesting because when I started at Animal Logic, Rob Coleman was the head of animation at Animal Logic. And I hadn't seen Rob in like 20 years, <laughs> but I met him there and it was really great to reconnect with him. Um, so, uh, so I went up, yeah, I interviewed with ILM and then I went up to PDI and actually they spent the entire day interviewing me. And I talked with every animator in the department and it was really exhausting. And at the end of it, I loved PDI so much. I was just like, Oh man, I really want to work there. And, um, and you know, I called Pixar and I said, Hey, um, did you guys get my reel? And they said, yep. And that was it. Like I didn't hear back from them. So, uh, so I eventually, uh, I took the job with PDI and we left LA and moved up to the Bay area. And, um, it's dumb, but at the time, um, like I didn't want to work at DreamWorks because when Jeffrey split off um, from Disney um, to start uh, DreamWorks with Spielberg and Geffen, um, and you know he was trying to get all of the animators uh, from Disney to go work there, and you know I had a really lovely uh, lunch with him, and he you know um, he had this trick where if you went to um, to have lunch at uh, at the studio with a meeting with Jeffrey, um, he'd go, Oh, Oh, come here for a sec. And he'd knock on a door and he'd go, Steve, do you have a minute? And he'd go in and he'd introduce you to Steven Spielberg. <laughs> so, um, I have a, a, a drawing of Steven Spielberg, um, that he did for me when I met him that time. And he wanted me to do a drawing of the hyenas for his son. So I gave him a drawing of the hyenas for his son. And he gave me a drawing of a T-Rex for me. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that was, that was kind of what Jeffrey would do. Um, but I didn't want to work on Prince of Egypt. I wanted to stay and work on Tarzan. So, um, but when I did want to leave, I didn't want to work at DreamWorks 
because DreamWorks had done Prince of Egypt and Road to El Dorado and they were doing CG stuff or 2D stuff. And I didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So um, DreamWorks actually had just purchased PDI and I kind of was vaguely aware of it at the time when I was talking with them, but it wasn't really until I kind of got my contract all squared away that I was like, Oh wow, I work for DreamWorks now. (laughs) So um, that's kind of how it happened. And I, I worked at PDI for four years. um, And uh, then the studio it, oh man, this is so technical, but there was a split in the tech at, at, the, at DreamWorks at the time where um, down in LA, they were working in Maya. And at PDI, we were working in in-house PDI software called eMotion. And so after we did uh, Madagascar, and I was the first animator, there was me and Rex and Denis. Rex was the supervisor, Denis was a lead, and there was me. And um, we did all of the dev for Madagascar. And um, Madagascar was a big, big shift in uh, the technology of how rigs were built and how you could animate those characters. Because on all the Shrek movies, and I got to say too, like when I signed my contract with PDI, they were just finishing Shrek. And um, I felt like Shrek was such a big step up from Ants. I felt the same way that I had when I was at Disney and they had just finished Little Mermaid. You know, I felt like, wow, this place is really on fire and they're really growing. This is amazing. So, um, and Shrek, uh, I love Shrek. Shrek has many, many things going for it. Um, not the humans, not the guards, <laughs> but, you know, Shrek and Donkey and Fiona, there's a bunch of really cool stuff in those movies. So, um, but they were all rotation based in the rigs and on the Madagascar stuff, we wanted to try to go more 2d and we wanted to have more of a Tex Avery flavor. So we built translations into the head and the hips and the shoulders, and that had not been done before. So we were able to squash and stretch the rigs in a way that was never possible previously. So we, we really pushed the, I think the tech a lot, um, on that movie. And it was really fun to do that, um, to really be involved in that. And, I don't know, maybe this will sound um, a bit egocentric, but like, again, I was really pushing on this to try to make it look as 2D as I could. And I did this Melman test and I was doing like smear frames on the eyeballs and all the, everything, all my old 2D tricks. I was really, really trying to push into this giraffe. And um, I was going up the elevator one day with Dick Walsh and he was the, the rigging, the face rig guru at PDI. And he won an Oscar for his face rigs. Um, and Dick is a really great guy. And I didn't know him at all. Cause I was just an animator. I'd only been there for a couple of years. And, um, he said, you're Dave, right? And I said, yep. And he said, I saw that draft test that you did. He said, that's the best piece of CG animation I've ever seen. And I was like, Oh man, <laughs> like I almost peed my pants. I was so happy. Um, and of course, you know, he was being kind, but I think what he was really responding to was it was very different and it was really pushing in a way that the rigs, you know, hadn't been pushed before. So anyway, so that's how I left Disney and got to, got into the CG world. I'm curious in your career in CG has sort of pushing the envelope and trying to do things in a different way, always sort of been part of your work. Um, I think like to me, every time you start on a project, um, it's good to set like specific goals for the project. So like, for example, on Porter, on Tarzan, I decided, you know, cause he had this big bushy mustache. 
I said, well, I'm going to try and do this whole movie with his lip sync and never show his mouth. I'm just going to try to do it all with the, the shapes of the mustache. And, you know, there's a few places that you can see the mouth open on really big vowel sounds, but mostly I did. Mostly I just used the mustache. So that was something I was trying. Um, when, um, when we started uh, Trolls um, at DreamWorks, um, I decided, you know, like DreamWorks, our animators, our animation team at DreamWorks was so strong and everybody worked from film to film to film and people could just animate like crazy. And, um, you know, the Panda movies and the dragon movies, they were so gorgeous. And I didn't work on any of those. Of course, I only worked on the other, uh, not Panda and not dragon movies. Um, but anyway, um, when I was starting on trolls, I was like, I want this movie to be different. Like, I don't want it to look like dragon so i don't want it to look like panda i want to do less i want to try and get all the animators to do less and i want to um, streamline our choices and i want to hold poses and i want to do things that to make it different so um so yeah it was it was like trying to set a real specific goal that um was unique to the project because i think if you can do that um it makes it really uh, specific and interesting and challenging and you don't feel like you're just doing the same old, same old, you know? Um, and like when I left uh, DreamWorks and I started at Animal Logic, um, and Lego two was my first project there. It was so fun to dig into like what made those Lego movies work. And like, you know, the, the faux stop motion feel and the fact that you could not bend these things, there was absolutely no squash or stretch, um, that, everything had to be legitimate, but you could rebuild the characters and you could change, you could use brick replacement to get the squash and stretch that you wanted or to, you know, to get the, the performance stuff. So it was a really, really exciting challenge. And like, yeah, I think for me, um, getting those kinds of challenges, uh, just makes the project way more interesting. How do you stay motivated as you're working on these projects that can sometimes take years before they come out? Um, I guess, um, ultimately you have to love the project. Like if you're on something that you're not super excited by, um, I don't think you do your best work. And like, for example, you know, after Tarzan, when I was super psyched to get into CG and the studio didn't want me to, they put me on Atlantis for a while. And I really wasn't super into that movie. And, um, I worked on it, but my heart wasn't in it. I, my heart was into trying to get into this new CG thing that I was so excited about. So I don't think I brought my best to the table when I was on that project. Um, so I think you have to be really in to the project. Like you have to commit and it has to speak to you. And I think if it doesn't, um, you should probably try to find something else to do you know, get put on a different project or something. And, um, sometimes it can be character specific. Like you might not love the movie, but you might love the character. And I think that can be enough, um, to keep you really motivated. But ultimately, like if you're not excited and psyched by the project, um, it's going to wear you down and you're going to get really tired. Um, and then you'll end up doing work that you don't, um, you know, that you don't, really love. And one thing too, that I know it's, it's kind of dumb, but like when I was 
trying to make that switch from commercials to, um, to features, um, in commercials, like the animation was great and it was really fun to watch, but it had like a really limited shelf life because it'd be on TV for, you know, a couple weeks or a couple months and then it would be gone. And no one knew who did it unless you were in the commercial industry. Mm-hmm. Whereas in features, um, you got to put your name on it. And so I loved like taking responsibility, you know, for my work, like I, my name was on it. I did this. And of course, you know, the way animated features are made, there's a big long, uh, credits list and, you know, the animators are all listed in a big, in a big group and you don't know exactly who did what, unless you dig into it. And then you can find out kind of who did what you can talk to people and, you know, you can, after the project comes out and it's available um, you know, either as a DVD or as a download or whatever, you can pull out your shots and you can say, yeah, I did this. These are the things that I worked on. And um, to me, that was, that was kind of a, sh- a slight mental shift, but I really appreciated it. Mm-hmm. One of the things we haven't talked about is, you know, you, you also give quite a bit back to the community. You're always very involved. You're always very keen to answer questions and to participate. I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about your experience with Animation Mentor. How did that start and what does that mean to you? Um, it's funny when I, um, this goes back pretty far to when yeah, I just started at PDI, but um, when I'd been at Disney, um, I'd been on the review board and the studio used to send me to a bunch of different art schools, you know, to look at students work and to give talks and uh, do critiques and stuff. And so um, I had done that at the Academy of Art in San Francisco. So when I moved up to Foster City, um, PDI was in um, Alta, or sorry, it was in Palo Alto at the time. Um, I kind of called the art school and said, hey, I just moved uh, to the area I might be interested in teaching some classes. Like, do you have anything that, you know, I might be good for? And they had this thing cause they remembered me and they said, Oh yeah, we have this class called, um, polish and portfolio, or it's called senior animation portfolio. And we're looking for an instructor. And so, um, I said, Oh, that's interesting. Um, let's talk about it. So I eventually took that and, um, it was basically a a final course for the people who had done the animation, um, classes at the Academy before they graduated. It was a chance to kind of polish all their work. So, um, I started doing that and that was, uh, I think it was one night a week in San Francisco. And, um, I really enjoyed doing that. Um, I sort of built the curriculum for the class and actually a couple of the students from my very first class, I'm still pretty good friends with, which is nutty. Cause that was such a long time ago. Um, so I did that for a couple of years and then, um, I noticed that, you know, the 2d had died <laughs> during that time. Um, like when I left Disney 2d wasn't quite dead. Um, but a couple of years later it was, it was pretty dead. There was really not much stuff happening in North America in 2d. So, um, I was like, Oh man, all these poor 2d animators are really going to get stuck. Cause like you need 3d on your reel to get a 3d job. Like I, I knew that firsthand. So, um, I started this new class called Maya for animators and it was, um, as a class where we, uh, me and Oliver, who was one of my students from my first year or my first course, who ended up being one of the key, um, TDs at blue sky, he worked there forever until the studio shut down. Um, but anyway, we, we designed and built some, some characters and, um, 
the animators would come into the class and it wasn't about rigging. It wasn't about modeling. It wasn't about surfacing. It was about taking a pre-existing rig and animating it because I think um, a lot of the courses that were animation courses were creating generalists who didn't know anything about character animation. They didn't know anything about spacing or squash or stretch or any of the classic principles. So um, I wanted to really focus on that. So people didn't have to think about the other stuff and they could just focus on animating and making their characters come to life. So I did that for um, a couple semesters and it was really popular. And I had a really nice split between CG people and 2d people. And then uh, over the hedge happened at work and the studio wanted me to move to Glendale. And remember earlier, I mentioned that there'd been this tech split between um, PDI and, and, uh, the Bay Area and uh, the you know main DreamWorks studio down in Glendale because they were working in my NPD. I was working in Emotion, um, but the studio decided to consolidate the software. So they wanted some um, some really you know strong uh, Emotion power users to go down to Glendale and be in the mix on the next project that was going to be done that way. So they asked me if I would do it, and I said yeah. Um, it was supposed to just be one project, but then it ended up kind of being forever, um, for various reasons. But anyway, so I had to leave, um, my teaching thing at the Academy cause I was moving back to Los Angeles and it was really funny cause the, uh, the president of the Academy, she wanted me to stay and she said, well, you know, we can fly you up in the jet on the weekend cause the Academy had a jet. And I was like, Oh, that's crazy. No, I can't do that. So, um, I couldn't do that, even though that sounded really hilarious and kind of cool. Um, but at that point in time, um, Jason Schleifer, who I'd worked with uh, at PDI, he said, oh, this friend of mine, Bobby Beck, is starting this online animation school. And he's looking for some instructors. Would you be interested in talking to him? I said, yeah, sure. So I called Bobby. And then Bobby said, oh, you're Dave Burgess? Oh, we all know you from your Disney lectures. Cause I'd done some lectures on timing and lip sync and stuff when I was at Disney that got recorded and those got sent up to Pixar and Bobby was a Pixar guy. So the Pixar guys had some of them anyway, had seen some of the lectures I'd done when I was at Disney. So he knew who I was and he was like, dude, yeah, come on, let's, let's get you in here. And Bobby's a very excited guy. And so, um, I eventually started in class one with animation mentor and then, um, over the years, um, I, I still work with them and it's been like 15 years or 17 years now. Um, I mostly do, um, advanced acting, which is class five, which is, um, the class that I really like. Cause by now the people that come into class five, they kind of have a good solid basic grounding in the software and how the rigs work and stuff. And it's really focusing on performance. Um, so um, I love that point. And like I mentioned earlier, I really try to work with the students on, on why, not so much how, like, it's really great to make, you know, beautiful, you know, fluid arcs and all those other really lovely animation things. But if you're not, if the reason that the character is doing something doesn't make sense, then it's pointless. So it was really fun doing that. And I think um, it's weird too, because the movie I'm working on right now at animal is called, um, DC's League of Super Pets, and it's about Crypto, Superman's dog. And I've been on this movie for well over two years, and um, we're almost done. We've got a couple more things to do, and then it comes out, I think, in May 
2022, and it's December of 2021 right now as we're speaking right at the very end. But um, even though I've been like a, you know, I've been a lead animator and a supervising animator and a head of animation on different projects, um, League of Super Pets is the first movie where I'm the animation supervisor and I didn't animate anything this entire movie. There's not a single shot that I animated in it. And that's never happened to me before because every other movie I've always been able to find time to animate. Um, sometimes I did a lot like a monsters versus aliens. I animated a ton. Um, sometimes I did a medium amount, like on Lego two, I animated a medium amount, but on this one, I animated none. Um, but this movie was really different because we wanted it to have a really strong 2D, like classic Disney sort of sensibility. And so I did more drawovers on this movie than I've ever done on any project before. So um, I think if you talk to any of the animators who worked on Super Pets, um, I think they'll, t you know, they'll say, yeah, Dave did drawovers on all of my shots. And um, I hope they would say they were helpful. <laughs> but that was the thing that I think... Um, that was what made working on super pets apart from, you know, just leading the team and, and trying to, you know, make sure that the animation we were doing was, you know, what the directors wanted and stuff, but doing the drawover thing was really amazing. And that is also a weird byproduct of the COVID lockdown because mostly when I'm in dailies, I'm at my desk with a, with my Cintiq in front of me. Mm -hmm. And mostly when you're doing animation dailies, you're in a theater in a dark room and there is no, there's no chance to do the dailies live uh, or to do the drawovers live in dailies. Mm -hmm. So um, I'd always done stuff, you know, at my desk and I would send it back to the animator, but there's a lot of times in, in like um, dailies on super pets where the directors would be, now the expression isn't right. I want it to be like this. And they would be talking about it. And then I would just draw it and they would say, yes, that's what we want. So that was a really, really cool thing. And that was something that we talked about trying to implement in dailies for years and years and years, and it never happened. So, um, that was a, that was something that I really, really liked. And it was a, like I say, it was kind of a cool byproduct of, uh, working from home. I'm curious, you know, you, as you've mentioned, you've seen a couple of major ships, shifts in the animation industry over the course of your career. What yep. do you think is the next big shift? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think I didn't talk about Shrek 2 because that was the other one. And Shrek 2 did for CG what Lion King did for 2D. Because when Shrek 2 came out, you know, it made so much money that studios popped up all over the place. And it was all this work and CG animation, which is really, really great. And, um, I worked on Shrek too. So that was fun. Actually, I worked on two out of the three because <laughs> I worked on Lion King and Shrek too. I didn't work on Roger Rabbit though. Um, so, you know, lucky me, I guess I've been fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. I think a couple times. Um, but I don't know, like I'm, I've been watching a lot of features lately cause you know, it's Academy season and all that. And, um, I watched a really interesting interview where, uh, um, Edgar Wright talked with Lord and Miller about Mitchell's versus the machines. Mm -hmm. And, um, I really, really thought Mitchell's versus the machines was great. And it's funny. Cause when I saw the trailer, I was, you know, 
the Super Pets guys can tell you, I was like, no way. Like, look at those designs. They're so unappealing. And um, and then I loved the movie. I loved the energy and I loved all the filter stuff they did. And it was really, really fun. Um, but Edgar Wright mentioned that, you know, he finds there's a sameness in a lot of the feature animation that comes out. And it can be, um, like he mentioned, a house style. And obviously the Disney guys, they have a house style. And um, they struggled in the in the zeros when they were doing Chicken Little and um, Meet the Robinsons and stuff because they were trying to figure out how to take what they did in 2D and do it in 3D. And it really wasn't until Tangled and... Um, maybe to some degree Bolt. Bolt was pretty fun. But they were able to um, remember what it was that made their movies really strong, and then they started doing that in CG. And obviously, they've been so good at doing it now. Like, it's just, like, every movie is really, really powerful, and their target is really precise. You know, you look at Encanto, you look at Raya, you look at... um, you know, frozen, you look at any of those films, there's um, a consistency of design and um, animation style that is, you know, it's like the Disney style and it's being done at the highest level. Um, But I think that can get a little bit tiresome sometimes. Like it's really fun to do something different. And I think maybe that's why, like with Trolls, I was really trying to do something different. And you see Mitchell's or you see Lego Movie or you see, um, you know, Spider-Verse. And they're all doing something different. And that's exciting um, because there's no reason to settle in CG animation, obviously. Um, Like, look at Arcane, right, that came out. Um, Just the look of that is so amazing. Um, The way the characters move, the painterly effects and stuff. I love looking at the way they they broke down the eye colors in that. Um, It's really exciting and it's so different. And to me, that's really very, very cool. And you know, when I talked about Super Pets a little bit, I did say, well, we were really trying to get kind of a Disney feel. And that was really fun because Animal Logic had never done that before. So it was really great to try to, you know, um, do something that the studio had never tried that I knew how to do pretty well. And then it was really exciting, you know, to try and do that. So, um, so I don't know. Um, I guess I I like that animation comes out and it seems to be booming. You know, the, um, obviously when, you know, COVID hit and, um, live action movies all had to stop, um, animation just barreled along full steam ahead, you know, and there's a ton of work. Um, there's a lot of, um, appetite for animated projects and obviously, you know, lots of other countries are, are getting into the, into the, animated feature realm and they're trying to, um, you know, to do really good stuff. Um, I love a lot of the European films, um, that don't get seen, you know, as much like, you know, cat in Paris and things like that. I thought were really great. Um, you know, I'm a big Miyazaki fan, obviously. And the, you know, the Ghibli stuff is pretty spectacular. Um, I thought your name was mind blowing when that one came out, just the visuals, the story was really good too, but man, the visuals were incredible. Um, so, I don't know. I just, I don't want, um, I would hate to have everybody just like settle, you know, and just go, Oh, we're just going to do things that look like this. So the more I think you can push stuff and, and come up with something that's unique and special, um, the way it moves and the way it looks, I, I think that's really exciting. And obviously, you know, Spider-Verse was a really 
incredible example of that. The landscape is very different now than it was when you started your career. But I'm curious, you know, with with your experience and your knowledge of the industry and, and, and everything that you've done over the course of your career, if you had a piece of advice for somebody new that wants to start or has just graduated and is looking for a job, what would that piece of advice be? Um, <laughs> the, um, I think the, the, the normal one I say is, um, work really hard and don't be a dick. So if you can do those things that, that will help, you know, like if people can rely on you and they like what you're doing and they see that you're working really hard and you're not a total tool, um, and they like working with you, that's going to help you. Um, I'm, I mean, personally, I guess I think a lot about ghost hours because, um, you know, the industry, there's been a couple notable times where, you know, people are being asked to do unpaid overtime. And I think that's really unfair. Um, but I also understand that, especially when you're starting out, you want to put in extra, like you want to go the extra mile. And so, you know, you might do some extra because you want your shots to look better, you know? So I think that's a real balancing act. And I think, I guess as long as the as long as you're doing it a little bit and you're doing it because you want to do it because you love what you're doing and you want it to look better. Um, that's okay. But it still bugs me when people are being taken advantage of and they're not getting paid for the hours that they work. Cause that's really, really not fair or legal. So I think it's, it's, you know, it's a balance that you have to find, especially when you're, you know, when you're just getting started. Cause, um, the, <laughs> my first shot that I remember on um, Aladdin that I had was, um, it was a really, really quick shot. And it was the genie. This was in um, friend like me. And it was the genie coming out of the lamp and um, Aladdin had just rubbed it and he comes out and the line goes, and I say, and that was it. It was just the genie coming out of a lamp like smoke, but I worked really hard at making the rhythm of how that, the smoke or the genie came out. And, um, when I showed it to the directors, they went, Oh, wow, that's really great. That's better than we thought. And so if you can make a shot better than the directors think it can be, I think that's really, really awesome. That's an awesome place to be. Um, and that's just because you're, you know, you're putting your, all of your heart and your creative abilities and your technical abilities are, you know, you're just doing everything you can to make it the best thing that it can be. Um, so anyway, um, those are the things that I think about. Yeah. And it comes out in, in the end, in the final result, even if you don't think it does. It does for sure. And, um, you know, when you're, um, when you're working in a, on a project in a studio, there's going to be, um, pressures about quotas and stuff. And, you know, you're going to, hopefully you'll know what the expectation is. Um, and you're probably going to end up doing that thing that I talked about earlier, like that you do in TV where you kind of pick and choose, you know, you're going to work extra hard on certain shots, um, because you want them to be better than, you know, other, you know, more continuity kind of shots that you can do a little bit more of the minimum on. Um, so it's finding that balance. And I don't know, like at Disney back in the old days in the nineties, 
um, every week the production assistants would come out and they would tack up the footage report and they would have every animator in the department listed by who did how much footage. And so it was really interesting because you'd see like who was exceeding quota every week and who wasn't. And um, I think, I don't know whether it was a motivational thing or if it was a shame thing, but you know, there was that list every week. And um, I think, the guys who were at the bottom of the list who were always, you know, not hitting quota, if their animation was beautiful, it didn't matter so much, you know, but if their animation was kind of average and they weren't hitting quota, um, those were the guys that, you know, when it was time to gear up for the next show, those were the guys that were the last ones to get cast or that would end up, you know, not getting a, a, a position on the next project. It's a hard, hard world out there, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so much better now than it was. There's just, there's so many more opportunities. And um, it's interesting too, because the work from home thing, you know, like animators have had to be migratory for so many decades where, you know, you go to school somewhere and then you'd get a job at Blue Sky. So you'd have to move to New York or you'd get a job at Real Effects. So you'd have to move to Texas um, or you'd get a job at, you know, Pixar and you'd have to move to Emeryville. Um but now it doesn't seem like you have to do that as much. You know, there's the possibility of, you know, working for better places remotely. And that's pretty exciting. I think, um, there's still nothing like, I think being in a room full of other animators, um, you know, working from home and you've got, you know, you've got zoom and you've got teams chat and you've got all these ways to connect, but just sitting next to people, um, and being able to go, dude, look at this. Does this work? Does this not work? Or, oh man, my, my, Maya just crashed. Is anybody else having any issues? And, you know, just being able to get that kind of feedback, I think is really, really amazing. And it's a lot harder to do when you're not physically in a room next to other animators. And that was our conversation with David Burgess. David's new project, DC's League of Super Pets, on which he was the animation director, is set for release May 20th, 2022. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits, as well as additional production support by Michael Edland. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.